This evening's talk is on Samvega. Most often the word Samvega, a Pali word, is translated into English as spiritual urgency. And actually, it's a term that's a little bit difficult to render into English because it includes uh, a number of different mind states. In the text, Samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And one being moved to a sense of urgency urgency within practice by what should move one, and then the systematic effort of one so moved. That's the textual or classical um, way of talking about samvega. So this spiritual urgency, this samvega, it isn't, it isn't at all frantic or tense or obsessive. It's an energy, a state of mind that actually most often comes out of some degree of understanding of the way of things. Some degree of understanding of the natural laws of how it is which may be felt or first sensed as the endlessness, the round and round and round of daily life. Or it may be felt through some degree of the perception of change, impermanence, anicca, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or samvega may be felt as the untenability or even the subtlety of the suffering in life in general or in one's own particular life. These experiences and these feelings attended by some vague, or maybe not so vague, sense that it doesn't have to be this way. That there's another way. And the urge, the feeling, the sense of moving towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us or moves us. It's often an emotional state that at times might be somewhat difficult or somewhat disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. While at the same time, this stirring energy of samvega has the power in itself to move us to connect in that very direction. And actually continuing all along the way of our practice. Samvega is an essential energy of successful practice. From my own experience, my own direct experience, I would describe samvega as the feeling of being stirred, stirred and actually inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by the phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and also by the phenomena that goes on around me in the world that I may be directly involved with in some way or that I may simply be an observer of. With some vega at these times, 
often being an inner response to various occurrences that happen outside of formal practice. And of course, it's also the spiritual urgency that arrives, arises in the very direct relationship to the experiences within practice itself. A kind of urgency or inspiration that arises out of a moment of direct mindful connection and clear comprehension. Or the wise reflection that moves and inspires me towards a deeper and more sustained effort in my practice. That samvega that moves me, that stirs me again and again and again towards letting go of, relinquishing the painful contraction of clinging, of clinging to anything. When some vega is present, it's sometimes experienced as an urgency, as an ardency, as an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice, something that I'm pretty sure each of you has experienced at times. And for some of you, probably an experience that happens many, many times. And I think it's fair to say for everyone here, very likely, at least in part, what brought you here to the Forest Refuge to practice. As a teacher, as a teacher of the Dhamma, your ardency, your sincerity, in and with your practice, moves and inspires me, considerably, actually. And I think it's safe to say that this is true for all Dhamma teachers, everyone who teaches here. It's one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here, both the yogis and the teachers, one of the wonderful aspects of living in a Dharma community a Dharma community such as this, even if it's just for a short period of time. So more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us moving us towards sustaining and deepening in our practice. What might move us outwardly and inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? What moved you to come to practice now, here, at this place? What moves you towards spiritual practice? There's a beautiful account uh, that's well-known of how a Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face-to-face with what are called the Four Heavenly Messengers while being driven in his chariot around the royal city after all his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, and death, and though not so common in our time and our culture, 
the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, ease, and the comfort of his life. Urgently moved to search for the truth. Inspired and moved to be liberated. Inspired and actually urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. And the overt suffering in life that touched him so profoundly during those early morning chariot rides. Isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in many, many different ways. Or even by pretending or maybe even believing that something else is happening. Until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us deeply. And we respond. And in fact, we respond in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth, seek the path of wisdom, understanding. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the various occurrences of our life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. If we don't generally perceive them this way, isn't it because of our habits? The habits that make our vision dull. The habits that make our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddha's teaching. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual and emotional stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practice. But at times this impetus can lose its freshness, lose its impelling force, as probably some of you have experienced at times. The remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us, which actually constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations, illustrating the truth of what suffering is, what it really is, and its cause, 
its origin. The clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the truth that, in fact, there's an end to this suffering. The solution, so to say. The solution being not clinging. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect, we could say. Via the path that each of us is engaged in walking at our own pace, right now, right here, in this very place. has very likely, some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of a direct vision within our own body-mind experience of these truths. Or quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can just show up. in relation to what might be, for instance, a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or clinging, or insight, wisdom, understanding might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty in the world, or a child who's weeping, or the distress of someone that you regularly see and have some contact with, or in relationship to some unaccustomed connection with the illness of a dear one, a loved one, or with one's own illness, or one's own bodily discomfort. Or myriad other kinds of flavors of experience. Each actually having the power to startle us, so to say. To promote a reflective response. And to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the end of suffering. We might be stirred and moved by directly seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, not-self nature of things. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind, more directly, clearly, and more and more subtly. A moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things, a moment of knowing that it's all not-self, it's all anatta. Phenomena just arising and passing according to conditions. With these moments of seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many, many stories, many experiences within our meditation practice and within our life as a whole. 
stories that exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. It's actually very often a part of what I hear in talking with students during interviews. It's very much a part of our life in our practice. There are a number of stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual energy. Being stirred up by the Buddha himself or by one of the arahants, one of his enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas, those beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for long lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't free from suffering yet. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland dwellings, these devas, approach certain bhikkhus who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And I'd like to share some of these uh, encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on that particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to a spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while he was there, he kept thinking unwholesome thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the verse. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy devoid of lust, and in this case lust not necessarily just meaning sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for all kinds of various experiences. And the deva goes on, you must abandon discontent, be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhantship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosalan country and entered into the forest, to an abode in the forest, to meditate. But when people found out that he was there, they continually came to him, lamenting over the death of the Buddha. So Ananda felt impelled to constantly instruct them in the laws of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva, who lived in that area, was very aware that the council could only succeed if Ananda attended it as an arahant. 
And so he came to provoke and inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. His name was Gotama because it was a family name and he was the Buddha's cousin. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deity, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue to read because though we're not in the same position as Ananda, we're certainly um, quite often caught up, seduced by the seeming necessity to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances both externally and internally, and neglect or even lose our practice, and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse really clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight, keeping our priorities clear. Not to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily into the hullabaloo, so to say. In another verse, on one occasion a certain bhikkhu was dwelling at Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion an all-night festival was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhu lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, and music coming from Visali recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who can there be worse off than us? And then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those going to heaven. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about a, a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms round and then eating his meal in the forest, in the particular woodland thicket where he practiced, would go down to a nearby pond every day and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation object, from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate. This bhikkhu, instead of meditating, instead is meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare, she thought. Let me draw near 
and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up Samvega, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responded, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for that reason, do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled, like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil, evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds to the bhikkhu, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that um, amongst those of us then and now, those who 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here, right now, who are quite sincerely practicing, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and culture. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, confidence, each and all of these qualities being essential in helping us to break through what might be a sense of, for instance, timidity or hesitation, fear or doubt or complacency. With these last five states of mind actually being based in our routine, habitual ways of living and thinking. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his bhikkhus to arouse samvega. There's one sutta where he's speaking to a group of his disciples and he says, rouse yourself, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, those struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, resolutely train yourself to attain 
peace. Go beyond this clinging to pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, the realms of confusion and anguish. And he goes on to say, negligence is attained, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of spiritual urgency, the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident about the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death that is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life right now. That not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth which, from this perspective, we could say is actually a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know, that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in our own being, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, confirms, and coming from his own direct experience, and often using himself as an example, he confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart. A moral or ethical responsibility, sila, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and, of course, competence. All of these qualities, all of these capacities, really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that at one point led us to look for a solution 
to our predicament. Our predicament has a very practical solution. A solution that's within the power of every human being. And a solution that we begin to have a growing faith in. Possibly from reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, the faith that grows and the confidence that grows that comes from our own direct experience through our own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is the solution or the path that develops out of spiritual urgency, that develops out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops, as it deepens. It, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is um, maybe a somewhat unlikely one from a contemporary uh, woman writer named Annie Dillard. It's a story that I've found uh, very inspiring and that invoked a sense of spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago. And then again, it had that same effect when I came across it more recently. So I'd like to share a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. I've been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed like a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth. And then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or two deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains, with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. 
I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading. But he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity. We live in choice, hating necessity and dying at the last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper, and obedient, and pure, to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your every bone unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtlessly, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. And let's sit for a moment. And we'll chant the sharing of blessings. For those of you that know it, please chant wholeheartedly. (laughs) And uh, the next time there's a Dharma talk, you can pick up, as I said, pick up one of these plastic-coated pieces of paper that 
has the chance on it. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.